Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of the Dante's Outlook podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Dante's, and over the course of this podcast, we'll discuss global markets and the factors that drive them. Today, we're talking about volatility. It's well known that markets ebb and flow, but over the course of the past 25 years or so, there has been a pattern of spectacular rises and crashes. And that comes at the expense of decaying economic growth and central banks becoming the leaders of last resort. To understand why this is happening, we turn to Tim Lee, the author of The Rise of Carry. He explains that carry trades, or borrowing at low interest rates to finance higher yield investments and assuming market stability, are behind recurring booms and busts. Tim and his fellow authors argue that market crashes are not the result of economic recessions, rather market crashes cause recessions. We've got a lot to explore, so sit back and listen in. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Dominic. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. It was an awesome read. Um, I learned a lot and, you know, it's a bit frustrating <laughs> reading it and applying it to today's markets, which is really interesting. And we'll unpack a lot of that. Um, mm-hmm. So just like get started with, you know, a little bit about your background and what motivated you and your team to write this book. Yeah, so I... I um... I spent um, over 20 years working for asset management companies, always as an economist. I, I spent my whole uh, whole career as a financial economist. Um, and then I set up on my own. And uh, uh, I'm living in the UK now, but I was living in the US then. I set up on my own a uh, small consulting group, consulting to hedge funds and other asset managers that was in, in Connecticut in 2003. Now I've come back to the UK in the last year or two. Um, so I've always always been doing financial economics. And at some point, I guess, in um, uh, the early 2000s, I started to get very interested in currency carry trades. And I felt that the currency carry trade aspect of the global financial crisis, uh, the fact there was a lot of yen-funded carry trade activity going on was kind of very um uh, was kind of being ignored i felt it was much more important than than was you know people think about because people think about the global financial crisis of 2007 2008 as being about mortgage backed securities and banks having too much risk on their own books but i felt there was this other aspect of currency carry trades going on behind and i got more and more into that and then um my son was working for me in the consulting operation for a while. My son Jamie, he's he's in his mid thirties now. He's had you know he's had, he's had a good career in asset management himself, as an economist. But he comes from a mathematics background, whereas I come from an economics background. So he got very interested in the whole volatility aspect and did a lot of work on stock market volatility, the vi- uh, trading volatility in the stock market. And we did some papers for for my clients, and we started to kind of feel yeah, this all fits together. The volatility selling aspect of currency carry trades, volatility selling uh, in the stock market. Uh, Jamie also did work on credit derivatives and stuff, and we kind of started to see a pattern there. And then um, Kevin, who's the other co-author of the book, um, someone I've known for a long time, he, he, he very successfully ran a hedge fund called Olga Coldiron out of San Francisco. They were, they were very, very successful. He had a, a long background in in finance and asset management. And he, uh, he kind of moved into academia, but um, I was very much in touch with him. And he said to me at one point, you know, you, you, you and Jamie should do, be doing a book on this stuff. Cause then he was also doing work on carry trades within the, um, within, with uh, to Berkeley and um, in the finance department. And we'd actually just, I'd been saying the same and we just started one and I told him that. And then he asked if he could be involved. And I thought that'd be great. Cause I knew he'd done interesting stuff too. So the three of us then worked on that book, and it took a long time. I agree about the frustrating bit. It's it's yeah. a really difficult. Um, you know, the stuff in the book, everything is connected to each other, and I kind of think we're we're really saying that the way you have to look at markets is a bit different from the way people do, but it's very very complicated. And I can't, I don't feel that we understand it fully, but we're, I suppose in the book, we're trying to, trying to point, in the, point in the right directions, I think, anyway. Yes. You know, and um, yeah, it's a, I mean, financial markets and the way they interact with the economy is a very complex topic. And people usually boil it down to sort of straight, this causes that, oh, you know, that happened and that meant this happened. And 
you know, I mean, I suppose we're saying it's a much more complex system than that. And uh, this idea of volatility selling has become central, but it doesn't mean it's easy to understand or easy to predict things particularly, but we're hoping the book can give people some sort of insights into the way we, we should be looking at things. Yeah, definitely. And just break it down for us. You know, what is a carry trade? Yeah. So carry trades are slightly touching on there already. When you read about carry trades, if you're reading your Bloomberg or something, and it talks about carry trades, they're, they're nearly always talking about currency carry trades, which is this, uh, and which this idea goes back a long way, kind of simple idea where a uh, carry trader who could be an institution, could be a company, could be an individual trader, borrow in a low interest rate funding currency, which you know, can easily be the US dollar. So the US dollar has very low interest rates. It's got a very liquid market. So you borrow at US dollars, say, and then use that to fund a position in a, in a, a, a higher yielding asset in, a, in, a, in, a, in an asset, usually a debt instrument in a higher yielding currency, higher interest rate currency. And, you know, in the book, we, meant, we talk about the Turkish lira quite a lot because that's a very good example of that. Turkish lira interest rates have been perennially high. They're very high today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I haven't kept up with them, but, you know, they've been sort of 19, 20%. Yeah. So you could, you could today, if you want, borrow in, the, in, if you have access to money, uh, money market borrowing rates, or even if you don't, even if you're paying more retail borrowing rates, you could borrow in the uh, US dollar at a pretty low interest rate and buy a Turkish lira bond that's probably yielding 20%. Mm -hmm. So you then gain that interest rate spread, which is the you know interest rate spread on the currency, um, and that's known as a currency carry trade. And the key though is it obviously doesn't. And the Turkish lira is a very good example because the Turkish lira keeps crashing, and it has done again <laughs> over the last year. If you do that and the Turkish lira crashes in a bad way, as it has. You'll, the trouble is you'll lose more money on the currency exchange rate than you gained on the interest rate differential. Mm -hmm. um, so what you're really doing when you're doing that is you're, you're making an implied volatility bet. You're kind of, you may not think about it in those terms, but you're, you're borrowing at a low interest rate, investing the money in a high interest rate currency like the Turkish lira. So you've got that, that yield pickup that you're going to gain as an income, mm. but you're making a bet that the currency exchange rate will be relatively stable, that it won't move really violently. If it moves really violently against you, then you'll lose more on the, the, the currency exchange rate than you made on the interest rate. So you're making, a, you're making an implied short volatility bet. You're essentially making a bet that the volatility of the currency exchange rate won't be high. Mm. And, you know, when we started, particularly Jamie, my son, and his contribution to the book, started looking at volatility trades in the stock market, which, you know, you can make the same kinds of implied volatility bets in the stock market by doing things like writing put options or shorting VIX futures. That's the purest way of doing it. Shorting the VIX, you know, the measure of uh, the S&P 500 implied volatility, which is tradable. Uh, or you can write put options or do other things which will make you money, will earn you a premium or an income if volatility doesn't, is, remains quite low or doesn't jump. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we kind of realized that all of these types of transactions are sort of somewhat similar, and we sort of found they're somewhat correlated, and then we started to see that pattern. Another one I always talk about, because it's very important here in the UK, but it's become much more so in the US institutions are doing it, is um, what you call here in the UK buy-to-let property investment, but usually I think it's called mm -hmm. buy-to-rent in the US. Mm -hmm. A lot of institutions yep. are doing that now, and... You know, all of my friends here seem to have, you know, I don't, but they all seem to have like two or three properties, which they rent out because mm -hmm. you've, you've had until recently, you've had big tax advantages to doing that in the UK. So people take out a mortgage. Um, they, they get, you know, often a good tax benefit on the mortgage, you know, tax deductibility on the mortgage. They take out a mortgage, buy a property, it could be a, an apartment or something, and then rent it out. And in recent times, uh, or, um, mortgage rates have been pretty low. So mm -hmm. they often get a better rental yield. The rent on the, uh, the, the rent they get from renting it out is better than the mortgage interest rate they pay. Yeah. So they get a, a income from that. And that is also, as we point to in the book, is, is another 
type of carry trade. It, wor it works and it seemed to work in the UK for people because house prices here just always seem to go up. Yeah. So people just think, well, there's no problem. I've, I've borrowed it, I've borrowed at four percent. I've got I've rented out at six percent. That, that's fine. But of course, th those people who do that are also making a bet that the housing market won't crash. The, the housing market here has tended to rise gradually over time. They're making an implicit bet that that will continue. They, they're ruling out the idea that there could be a huge crash, which would be a huge increase in the volatility of the property market. And of course, that does happen. It happened in the US in 2008, 2009 in many markets. Property crashed in many markets. You know, I was living in Connecticut then. Property crashed in where, we, when, where I was living in Connecticut. Mm. Um, uh, so again, if you've bought, if you've taken out three, three lots of mortgages and bought three apartments and rented them out, you might be getting a nice income. But if those, if those apartments all halve in value, you'll, you'll end up um, a loser. Yeah. Now, I don't know if, uh, well, maybe I should go straight on to the characteristics of carry trade. Should I go straight mm -hmm. on to that? Yeah. Um, so all of these types of trade, I mean, most people would say if you talk, if they were doing what we would call a carry trade in the property market, a buy to rent property investment, if you kind of told them, well, that's what you're doing is shorting volatility. It's a bit like shorting the VIX. They would, they would, they would be, <laughs> they wouldn't know what you're talking about and they would think that's your your that's nothing to do with it but uh but all of these kinds of trades have the same characteristics uh which we point to in the book and what we find is you know empirically is they are rather linked so mm. yeah you may not think if you do a buy to let property investment that you're doing something similar to a volatility trader in the stock market shorting the vix but in reality they are, they're not linked in a very obvious way that you can see, you know, really obviously, but there does seem to be some connection between them. And it's because of the characteristics they have. So I've mentioned their short volatility carry trades. They're also leveraged. Mm -hmm. uh, we kind of define them as leverage, but, you know, if you borrow US dollars to buy Turkish lira, you're exposed to, you're exposed to a lot more you're risking a lot more than your capital, perhaps without yeah. realizing it, because if the Turkish lira suddenly falls 50%, you're going to lose a lot, a lot more than you put into it. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if you're doing a lot of um, buy-to-rent property investment, you know, if you're, you've, you've, you've bought three properties on a, on a you know, near 100% mortgage, if you can do that, and then all the properties halve, you're going to be in a huge negative, net equi negative uh, equity and lose a lot of money. So they're leveraged. But then the other feature that we point to that's really important, I think, in understanding how markets have developed is there, and this is, I think, what people don't understand, is that they are liquidity providing to markets. And that's why they perform such an important role. Hmm. Because, you know, Turkey is a country, going back to Turkey, and we use that as an example, it's a country that has very high interest rates. It's difficult for people to borrow there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's got you know balance of payments deficit or have has had traditionally so it's kind of liquidity constrained it's not it's not um it's not easy it's not uh, then markets there aren't that liquid but mm -hmm. if people if people are borrowing in us dollars and putting the money into turkey to pick up that interest rate they're providing liquidity in a sense to turkey and if you do like here so many people do say in the uk there's a lot of buy to rent property investment it means that if you have an apartment it's often difficult to sell an apartment. If you have an apartment, sometimes housing markets aren't very liquid and it might take you a long time to sell it. But uh -huh. if there's a lot of people doing buy to rent property investment and looking around, you know, they want to do that kind of investment, they're looking around at properties they can buy, then there's a much more liquid market in property. Hmm. So a feature <laughs> of all these carry trades is when there's a, you know, a, a preponderance of carry trades, it makes markets more liquid. Yeah. But and we can talk about the role of central banks, but uh, yeah. but later. But the the flip side of that is if volatility, and we try to explain this in the book. But if volatility suddenly does jump, there's some kind of crisis, like in 2008, uh, or in fact we saw saw it for a short-lived short period uh, with coronavirus in um, mm. February and March 2020. If volatility suddenly jumps then all of these carry trades kind of get hit. They become loss-making. 
people are withdrawing from them. They're getting margin calls. And then liquidity dries up. So that's the flip side. So carry trades make markets more liquid. But when they when you get a what we call in the book a carry crash and volatility jumps, mm. they can be affected across all these different markets. And then you see liquidity dries, liquidity dries up, and suddenly markets become surprisingly illiquid. Mm. And and you know, we saw that with the corona that we saw that particularly with the coronavirus crash in um February and March 2020. In 2019, I remember I was reading a lot of stuff about how there was so much liquidity in markets. You had all these leveraged buyouts going on. You had all this Mm -hmm. private equity stuff. And it seemed like markets were going up and it seemed like markets were really liquid. There was just tons of money around. But then we had coronavirus and suddenly it's all gone. You know, (laughs) it's like the liquidity is all just gone and everything's imploding. That's because, you know, a lot of it is this carry trade stuff. There's too much leverage, actually. The carry trades liquefy the leverage. But when when the carry trades come under pressure and you get this, what we call a carry crash, they Mm -hmm. go into reverse and suddenly the markets all become very illiquid. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, when central banks are... Feel they have to step in. Exactly. And I remember towards like the end of uh, 2019, there was some concerns about CLOs, like their covenants were kind of like, you know, Murray and, and there was a lot of leverage in the system, right? Leading up yes. to the coronavirus, right? So yes, it was just like a, you know, cascading effect. Um, and liquidity is a central piece of it, uh, moving towards the central banks. How do they, you know, respond to these boom and bust cycles and, and they're forced to create some sort of stability? So it's like a self-fulfilling monster in a way. It is. Yes, uh, th- th- I think it is. And I'm, I'm very critical of central banks personally, but I know that um, we didn't want to... Um, I know my uh, my co-author Kevin is more sympathetic a little bit, and we didn't really want to make the book a kind of central bank bashing book. There's actually uh, we're not going to publicise other people's books, but there's a book that's come out that's more popular than our book that is a kind of central bank bashing book. There's a few of those books, you know, blaming everything yeah. on central banks, and I think it's realistic. You know, it's 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 I I blame central banks a lot, um, but yeah, they have felt that it is their job to not allow, as I just mentioned, and when you have a carry crash like happened in February and March 2020 with coronavirus, um, liquidity dries up across all markets. Mm -hmm. And as we've tried to explain in the book, and this is one of the more complex area, complicated areas, I think, you know, we think that the cycle in the economy is now very much connected to the cycle in financial markets. The carry trade, the growth of carry trades over all these two or three decades now has made markets more liquid, but also caused asset prices to rise because when people do yeah. the carry trade, they're actually caught. It's a volatility selling trade, but a kind of byproduct of it is it makes the asset price go up. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, like I mentioned with buy to let property, buy to rent property, which is the simplest thing you may, when people do buy to rent property, they're borrowing, they're taking out a mortgage and buying an apartment and renting it out. Usually their idea there is thinking, well, I'm going to earn more money on the rent than the cost of the mortgage, particularly after the tax advantage. So I'm getting a nice income for myself and people live off that. I mean, I know, I know people that do, but they're actually causing the house price to go up. They're mm-hmm. making the housing market more liquid, which isn't a bad thing, but the house price goes up because of their buying. If the carry trades in housing are expanding, if more and more and more people are doing that, oh then it causes the house price to go up. And similarly, if more and more people are doing currency carry trades, like they're borrowing US dollars to buy Turkish lira assets, it makes the Turkish lira go up. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to argue in the book that it, that it causes asset prices to rise and then that affects the economy because people feel richer. Yeah, The people who own the assets, if you own a house, then you feel oh, my house has gone up quite a lot. I can perhaps do a bit of I can maybe do a home equity loan against it. Mm-hmm. People feel richer and it gives it they're able to uh, they feel they're getting better off and they can spend more money. And that in turn, it's good for consumption, but it kind of distorts the economy and makes the, cons- the economy more consumption oriented. It's a bit. It's a bit artificial. It's not, it's you get growth out of that, but it's not perhaps sustainable yeah. because it's making the economy instead of the economy sort of doing well because people are having good ideas 
and thinking that's a good idea, I'll invest in that and doing real investment. It's making the economy do well because people are feeling richer because of asset prices going up and then thinking, well, I can spend some money now. I can have a you know, better, better time. I can go on holiday. I can do this because my house has gone up and my stock portfolio has gone up. Yeah. Uh, and that, so it's good for the economy in the short run, but not really in the very, very long run. I think we'll see the effects of this much longer term. But of course, when you have the carry crash and the asset prices crash, then everyone, like, oh my God, I just lost a lot of money. The economy then does very badly mm-hmm. because people draw in their horns, think, you know, I've oh, gosh, I've just lost a lot. And so the central banks feel that that's part of their job to not let the economy plunge into recession. Mm. And they feel it's part of their job not to let markets become really illiquid and, and you know, start to crash. So they, they, when you get the carry crash, like happened in March in 2020, a couple of years ago, you know, we saw the Fed do incredible things in terms of mass, you know, acting in virtually all markets. I mean, they took action in, uh, you know, obviously they expanded their balance sheet enormously when they bought mortgage-backed securities and treasury securities, but they did all these loan programs. They yeah. committed to buying corporate debt. Uh, uh, I've forgotten everything they did, but they did so many different programs. They were acting in all markets to kind of reliquify all the markets yeah. and and suppress the volatility across all the markets. And it worked to the extent that it caused markets to go back up. And we, in fact, we've gone into this huge bull market. Um, and that's caused the economy to do better again. But as you were hinting there, I think it kind of creates a vicious circle because it just makes the carry. I think we can... It, 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 we can talk about the statistical aspects, but it's actually very hard to measure how big mm. the outstanding global volatility selling trade is. Yeah. We can probably guess it's even bigger now. Central banks do this stuff and it encourages, it encourages the growth of carry trades and the associated leverage even more mm. because, because people feel well, um, people feel well, um, yeah, okay, well, it was a bit bad, but, you know, we've come out of it fine. Central banks are in control. They're, they're able to suppress the volatility. So it's, you know, safe to go back in the water and put more of these kind of trades on. And when, as, as carry trades are growing and growing across more instruments, volatility selling trades are growing across more instruments, you know, the markets, as, as say, helps liquidity seem to become more and more liquid. Mm-hmm. Asset prices rise and the economy does well again. And it all seems fine until we get the next the next carry crash. And I think one, one thing to point to is that, is that, you know, there's always a reason for the carry crash. And I think you might want to ask me later on about, about where we are now. But I mean, we have, you know, the situation in the Ukraine at the moment. And so, you know, you might wonder, well, could that cause a carry crash? I mean, there's always, there's, the market always will find a reason. But really, from our perspective, the carry crash occurs because we've got to a point where there's too much lever. The, system, the carry trades are leveraged. You've got to the point where there's too much leveraged and the amount of ma- leverage in the system, we call it systemic leverage, is too great. There's too much, uh, too much leverage, even relative to what central banks are doing. It's like a mm-hmm. kind of house of cards. And at some point it reaches the point where it just can't grow anymore and starts to shrink. And a point we make in the book also is, the rise in asset prices, as we've been getting again over the last two years, tends to cause imbalances of various types. You know, people start spending too much money. They're not saving enough. The carry trade into Turkey, because it's a capital flow into Turkey, causes the currency to be too high and not so much now, but in the past. Mm-hmm. And um, that causes the balance of payments to go into deficit. So you get these kind of, the, you, get, you, you get imbalances in the economy caused. And that also, the, 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 the the fact there's too much leverage and economies become unbalanced sort of sets us up for the next carry crash. And the thing that people identify as having caused it, like coronavirus, is really just the trigger. I, I would say that even if coronavirus had never happened, we would still have had a crash such as we had in February, March last year at some point, maybe not then, yeah. but later on, there would have been a similar kind of thing which would have caused mm-hmm. the Fed to act. And people would have probably seen some other reason for it mm-hmm. so you know it's interesting to think about that now and we can come back to it but with what's yeah. going on in the ukraine now could that cause a carry crash and yeah. it could but we the, whether it will or not really depends on are we at that point again where the amount of leverage the amount of risk mm-hmm. being taken has outrun even what the central banks are doing you know it's yeah. like you've got the central banks 
trying to prop things up and pump in the liquidity. And you've got the, you've got the, the, the fact of leverage getting too high and mm-hmm. potentially outrunning even what central banks are doing. So you can still get this contraction, which is the carry crash, which tends to, tends to happen quickly because carry trades are levered, which means people are subject to margin calls. They're subject to having lo- losses that get out of control. They have to cut their positions. And that's where it kind of snowballs once it contracts. And as yeah. I say, liquidity that's created by carry trades evaporates in the crash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, leverage can only go so far, you know, and I think people become accustomed to the asset price inflation, and that leads to the mispricing of risk. And what we saw in 2008, that transfer of risk, right? Yes. And at some point, you know, there has to be some sort of risk premium or management. How do you sort of measure the imbalance, right? I think you talked about balance of payment, the transfer, net transfer funds. Talk to us a little bit about those indicators. Yeah. So, in the book, we particularly talk about this circular flow of dollars, which is kind of a little bit technical. And yeah. I, I'll be honest with you, I, we did, I did wonder whether we should have that in the book because it's perhaps of more interest to economists and market people. But, but, um, but the, the interesting thing about the, 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 the dollar, we argue in the book that the dollar and the US and the Fed and the S&P 500 have become very central. If you see this as a sort of... Uh, if you think of the world economy as sort of, or the finan- world financial system as being this sort of a whole load of carry trades that are partly correlated and related to each other, and people are hedging risk and transferring risk, as you just suggested. So you've got this great kind of system of carry trades across markets across the world. We're sort of saying the US is at the center of that kind of nexus. Mm-hmm. And the S&P, we argue, and it's a more complicated argument in the book, we argue the actually S&P 500 is very critical because a lot of risks are hedged back into the S&P 500 because it's oh. the most liquid volatility trading market. Um, so, but that means that the US is the source of funding. Like I mentioned the idea of, you know, say, people in Turkey borrowing U.S. dollars because it's so much cheaper to borrow than Turkish lira and then using that, those U.S. dollar borrowings to finance investments in Turkey or hedge funds or asset managers around the world borrow U.S. dollars. But it, it raises the interesting question to an economist, at least, uh, how is that possible when the U.S. has a trade deficit because it's a capital outflow? It's easier to understand before, before the global financial crisis um, I spend a lot of time trying to analyze the yen-funded carry trade, which is people around the world borrowing yen, because if you remember, yen interest rates were kind of zero for a long time yes. before interest rates went to zero roughly everywhere else, mm-hmm. um, because Japan had its big crash in the 1990s. Um, so people were borrowing yen to fund kind of investments around the world. So what called it, I used to call it the yen carry trade. Other people focused on that too. But that was quite easy to understand because Japan had a big saving surplus, had a big current account surplus, big trade yeah. surplus. So there was like a surplus of yen, which for people to borrow for, from, if you like, if you look at it like that. But the US actually is a deficit economy. It has a current account deficit. So the US actually needs financing for that deficit from outside. So the question then, well, how come... How can we say that all these carry trades around the world are being financed out of U.S. dollars when the U.S. itself needs financing for its deficit? And that's where this circular flow comes. And really what we're saying in the end, it is foreign reserve. It's the growth of, and you can see this from statistics, foreign reserve statistics around the world. The, the financing is really coming from the growth of dollar foreign reserves held by central banks and governments, sovereign wealth funds yeah. around the world. They've grown enormously. And I mean, the, I've checked the data recently, but the Chinese foreign reserves there are themselves are about three and a half trillion or three to three and a half trillion dollars and uh, in dollars. And a lot of that is held in dollars. And there are, you know, uh, other, other, countries in the Far East and Middle East and elsewhere, their sovereign wealth funds mm-hmm. hold a lot of assets or the central banks themselves hold a lot of foreign assets, which are mostly in dollars. So they, 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 it's them that's accumulating dollars and are really allowing, they're kind of financing the US and then the US is financing the growth of the dollar carry trade. So it's like a circle. Yeah. And that's what we try to explain there in the book. And there are various things, there are various um, data series you can look at, uh, like banks, um, 
banks net claim, banks net lending to these countries that we identify as ones where that have significant carry inflows, like Turkey, Brazil is another one. Um, and and you can look at balance of payments data and um, foreign debt data, and there's various things you can look at that kind of help you get a sense of direction. But as we stress in the book, they don't, even for the currency carry trade, they don't really tell you the size because it's only a small part of the picture. Mm. It just gives you a sense of direction. And when you think about carry trades more broadly, um, and one of the things we talk about in the book is carry trades are always levered. They're always leveraged, but they don't always have to involve debt. Normally they involve debt. I've talked again and again there about, you know, buy to rent property. That's clearly involves debt. People take out a mortgage. They have a mortgage debt. If you're going to buy a property to rent out as a buy to rent, then you borrow money and you buy the property and rent it out. So you've got a mortgage debt and most carry and carry trades are quite close. I shouldn't say most, but carry trades are quite closely associated with debt. So debt statistics help you get a sense of the growth of carry trades because debt can be used for other things too. So it's not all carry trades. But we also point out in the, in the, um, the book that not all carry trades necessarily involve debt. Mm. Um, they can involve just using derivative contracts, which are not clear. They're transfers of risk. Yeah. And they can concentrate risk. So, um, I give the example in the book saying that, you know, another kind of carry trade really is writing insurance. That's the most, the easiest one to understand, <laughs> you know, and hedge funds can write insurance. You know, they do things like that. Uh, if you write, if you insure, if you write insurance, so someone is buying insurance off you, you're covering their risk if thing they're insuring goes wrong. You know, if you insure their house, it burns down, you've got to pay them. But if it doesn't, you get the, you get the, you get the premium. And that is really a transfer of risk. It's not, Clear, it might be there might be debt involved at some point along the chain, but it's really a transfer of risk rather than actually involving a clear debt. And a lot of kind of particularly things you can do with derivatives contracts, like um, shorting the VIX. Yeah, there may be debt kind of along the hedging chain somewhere, but it's not clear. There could mm. just be concentrate. Some people could be taking on more risk, and other people are offloading risk. So yeah. carry trades can just involve con. con uh, transferring and concentration of risk, but that doesn't make them less dangerous. In fact, it can make them more dangerous actually, because when you have concentration of risk, you're nearly always going to get mar the margin call effect is mm -hmm. going to come through more quickly if the markets, you know, if the asset prices go against the carry traders, yeah. because they're going to have brokerage accounts and stuff, and they're going to be subject to margin calls and have to cut their positions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, with the statistics, we emphasize that in the book, I feel help directionally. You know, you can look at some of these currency carry trade statistics and think, yeah, it looks like the carry trade picture's getting bigger. The amount of leverage is increasing, but mm -hmm. you're really only looking at a very small part of the picture. The bigger picture of all this risk transfer, concentration of risk, I don't think there are any statistics that it can, can give mm -hmm. you. There's no real statistics of that data. I mean, people look at things like the U.S. flows of funds data now called the U.S. financial accounts. That can be very helpful, but it's difficult to interpret and mm -hmm. difficult to understand the cause and effect and difficult often to understand what you're really looking at. And you also suspect that even the Fed, with all their data gathering and stuff, probably don't necessarily have it completely right. And, you know, we're not just talking about the U.S., we're talking about the world. And the U.S. statistics are very good, but a lot of other countries, the statistics are not really that good. Yeah. So you... You don't, you can't, that's the problem. You can't really have a total picture of the, you know, people talk about, you know, people might ask me, what is the size of the carry trade globally? And we can guess at the size of the currency carry trade possibly, but even then we've only got very partial pictures. So it's just a guess, but you can't guess at the size of the total carry trade, including, including, yeah, carry trades in property, volatility, That's selling the credit derivatives. You can't, there's no way you can know that. Yeah. So you're, unfortunately, and this is very unhelpful, but if you're a, if you're a, a market trader um, and you want to know, you know, are we, um, I mentioned it earlier, are we going to have a carry crash now? Hmm. No one is really in a position to say, well, yes, the carry trade now seems to be, 
15 trillion in size, and that's the kind of size I would expect a carry trade crash to happen at. There's, you can't do that because... And uh, I don't because, want to admit that. They've got no, the risk. So. Uh, exactly. So you can't... So there's no way... There's no statistics will help you know that. And you're, you're left really looking at things that can help, like because we... You know, we suggest in the book that central banks have been central to this. And yeah. uh, the central bank balance sheet, like the Fed's balance sheet, I mean, the Fed's balance sheet is near, I think, about $9 trillion in size mm-hmm. now. I mean, that is a carry trade in itself, you know, and that people are starting to look at that aspect. Yeah. Their, their, their liabilities, quite a lot of them only pays, you know, like cash currency and other, don't pay any interest, but they've got mortgage-backed securities and treasury securities, which do earn a yield. So they have got a carry trade there, and they are subject to the risk in the short run mm-hmm. that the value of their mortgage-backed securities and stuff will plunge, you know. And um, so they, they are, they're, they're, they are shorting volatility themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you can say that it's actually because the Fed's own volatility short position has grown so much that is what has caused the global carry you know i mentioned that the us we argue is the center of this whole global nexus of carry trades because mm. the fed's own carry trade has expanded so much yeah uh, by trillions of dollars that that is in directly behind the expansion of other carry trades because if the central bank expecting their own carry trade they're in some sense uh, they're increasing the supply of carry trades, if you like. But as they do that, they make the asset prices better and they encourage other people to do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but at some point, it, it, it lowers the prospective return to carry trades. And that's another way of looking at why you get the carry crash. At some point, there's too mm. much leverage and the prospective return to carry trades has become too low. Yeah. Uh, and then, you, then it can go into reverse. Um, but mm. yeah, the, 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 Fed is, uh, the Fed and the central banks are central to that in that very direct way. Yeah. Hey, yeah, you can definitely tell how it compounds the carry effect. Um, yeah. And I would say from the asset management perspective, you know, I joined Fidelity in 2014. I went from 2014 to 2018 uh, or 2016. And the investment process was built on the business cycle in terms of global asset allocation, right? Yeah. You monitor the ebbs and flows, how asset classes perform, and it's pretty static. But then 2014, you know, from 2008, you kind of had this disruption. And the cycles yes. have gone longer than expected. Yes. So no one expect no one can really accurately pinpoint when the end occurs and when do you shift the allocation. Yes. So it causes this sort of um, unidentifiable risk. Yes. And you're you're forced to sort of reach out for yield consistently. Yes. And it's it's a very interesting cycle. And I think um, you know that's that's the thing from an asset management perspective. It's like how do you sort of manage money in this new regime? Because it's unpredictable, yeah. it's unprecedented, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and the investment angle from your book, which I found really fascinating, was like how you constructed that carry portfolio. Talk to us a little bit about that um, and some of the correlations that you saw. Yeah, that that is very interesting. Now that's um, that is really the work of um, my co-author Kevin, and because you know he's at Berkeley and fin- the lectures in finance, and that's really was his area, and that's why he joined okay. the book. But I can I can answer some questions on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what he did, but I can't take the credit for it. <laughs> what he did, what he did there is, um, yeah. So he he constructed a currency carry portfolio, basically using weightings that were based on the interest rate differential. So yeah. If you look at it, Turkey has, I always go on about Turkey because, uh, you know, I did emerging market economics and Turkey was one of the countries I used to focus on. But, um, but Turkey is very important because it's had the highest interest rates a lot of the time. And that comes out as a big weight in, in the carry portfolio. So he kind of constructed a kind of hypothetical carry port- currency carry portfolio hmm. based on um, weighting the currencies exposure in the portfolio by the interest rate differential. So if the interest rate differential against the US was bigger, then the weighting is bigger. So Turkey has a high weight in some countries which have a much lower interest rate spread relative to the US interest rate differential against the US have a, a lower weight. Um, then he looks at the performance of that portfolio, including the interest rate, the carry, and of course, whether you gain or lose on the currency exchange rate movement. And what it showed is that, you know, currency carry, that kind of portfolio 
And of course, uh, oh yes, and the portfolio weights change all the time based on the yeah. uh, the interest rate differentials moving. Uh, so it's not a static portfolio. Um, so, but it's mechanic. It's it's you know it's a, mecha- a portfolio that works mechanically. And of course, it's all this is all go looking backwards. Mm-hmm. But if you'd had that kind of portfolio, you'd have done very well for a long time up until the financial crisis in two thousand and eight. And then you'd mm-hmm. had have lost a lot of money in two thousand eight because. Again, this is very important and people forget it. Everyone thinks about 2008 as being Lehman's going bust and stock markets crashing. But the currency carry trade was going wrong from about July of that year. Before Lehman's went bust, you started to see the currency carry trade started to inflict pretty big losses from about July. The Australian dollar, which at that point was a big carry trade recipient, was a big, you know, you did, the Australian dollar had higher interest rates. It doesn't now, but at that point it did. Uh, so that was an important carry currency. They all started to go down from July, about two months before, two or three months before Lehman's went August. So yeah, two or three months before Lehman's went bust. So you could argue if you take this view that all these things are correlated, that was a kind of warning that something was going to go wrong, yeah. uh, was already there. Um, and then after the, uh, so currency, the currency carry portfolio, hypothetical one, crashed uh, in the financial crisis then. But then it rebuilt back up, but it hasn't really done that well since about 2014. And that ties in with, um, that ties in with the statistical work I've done on, you know, bank, which is some of which is in the book there on, uh, on bank, on, on currency carry positions that you can kind of get a clue, a little bit of a clue to from banking data and balance of payments data that, and, and things like that. They all also seem to suggest that there hasn't really been, not only has the currency carry not done that well since 2014, but there hasn't really been any increase in the outstanding currency carry trade since then. But um, even so, the currency carry trade is still quite large. It may not have increased, but it hasn't decreased a lot until probably the the coronavirus crisis. It started Mm. to decrease more now. And you still had a currency carry a significant negative currency carry return during the coronavirus crisis as well, which started really before the crisis. From if, if from if you look at the from the beginning of 2020, currencies like Australian dollar, Brazilian real, they mm. also just like before the um, 2008 Lehman crash, they started to do less well. So there is still a currency carry trade there, and so one sign of a carry crash probably would still would still be a rise in the dollar because the dollar is the main funding currency. I think a sign of a carry crash, you'd still have the dollar rise, even though the currency carry trade is less important. But, you know, we, when Kevin did that work, he also identified, and it's in the book that, you know, there is a correlation between the currency carry trade performance and stock market performance. So when currency carry trades crash, even if it's only a mini crash, te- not all the time, but usually it tends to be the case that the US stock market, the S&P 500 does less well mm. at the same time. But what I would suspect has happened, and we talk about it in the, in the book, is that the S&P 500, which we argue in the book has itself become a carry trade because volatility selling in the S&P 500 has become so important. And it makes sense because if you look at a chart of the VIX, which is, you know, a measure of the implied volatility of the S&P 500, you see that it has these spikes, mm-hmm. these volatility shocks, but they, they reverse fairly quickly. So you have these spikes and reversals. So if you're brave and you short the VIX during one of the spikes and you wait a bit, you make a profit. Mm-hmm. So and, and shorting the VIX generally has been a profitable trade, as we discuss in, in the book. It makes sense that the more and more that the Fed has done, given that the Fed is central and the Fed, they wouldn't say, if you ask someone at the Fed, they would say, well, do you look at the S&P 500 when you make policy? They would say, of course. <laughs> but in reality, they do, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and people kind of know they do. <laughs> and uh, so it makes sense if you think the Fed's balance sheet's expanded the most and the Fed's got this giant carry trade and they have been very active in trying to suppress volatility effectively, that the S&P would have become the, you know, the S&P volatility trade would have become central to the whole volatility trade, the whole carry trade. And, and so it makes sense that in some sense, 
one way to think about it is since 2014, the currency carry trade is probably being a bit displaced hmm. by the S&P 500 carry trade. Ah. But if you accept that, that would mean that the next carry crash will be, and this won't be um, good news for your uh, your listeners who, who you know, who are, uh, got money in the stock market, which I guess most do, it would suggest that the next carry crash might be much more centered on the S&P 500 than anything else. Mm. That would be one of the, the suggestions, you know, one of the things that come out of the book. But, you know, you could, and a good friend of mine who's been a very successful investor, uh, he would probably argue, well, look, we had the big carry crash in 2008 and we had, you know, smaller volatility shocks in 2011, 2012, 2015, 2018, when the VIX had that very big jump. Hmm. We had a volatility shock in, in the early 2018. Uh, but then we had a, you know, more significant carry crash with the coronavirus crisis in which liquidity evaporated and the Fed had to do enormous amounts. Yeah. You might conclude that, well, the next one is going to be some time away because there's, you know, the carry trade builds up again, and it tends to, as mm -hmm. you said earlier, it tends to go on for quite a while with returns being fairly steady for quite a while until you get the next shock. Yeah. And you could argue, well, that shock was only two years ago. Um, you know, we could easily have another couple of years to go, but I'm not so sure about that because mm. I would say that the whole structure is getting progressively more fragile and also the scale of the leverage buildup, I would suspect, and you can think of it in terms of risk taking over the last two years has been even bigger hmm. than before. And so this, if you call it like a cycle that we've been in another cycle since, if you say, well, maybe we've been in another cycle since two years ago, yeah. it's not really clear it's even been another cycle, but let's say, well, it is because you had, you know, the VIX jumped to 80 or whatever it was and came all the way back down, not all the way back down. And that's another point, mm -hmm. but came down. Uh, maybe we've got, you know, you could say, well, maybe we've got four years, you know, over the month, but maybe not, maybe two years is going to be enough and we're coming up to a carry crash now. Yeah. And, um, um, yeah, I mean, you can even say that maybe the carry crash of March 2020 was too short-lived even to be a proper, you know, maybe it hasn't even given us a new cycle. I mean, all of these things. Yeah, exactly. All debate, all of these things, that it might just be an extension of a kind of additional element of yeah. the last cycle. And then, uh, then that means we've been going a long time. And um, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm, People who know me now, I always tend to be rather bearish, but I'm rather bearish and think that the, uh, well, I'm very bearish. I think the, the next carry crash could come sooner. And one thing is, I think a very important thing is, you know, we say at the very beginning of the book that you can think of carry trades as trades that make money if nothing happens. Mm -hmm. That if nothing happens, it's a very general thing, meaning that, the world's quite calm. Everything's sort of volatility is low. Everything seems calm. Everyone's doing fine. Markets seem liquid. Then carry trades work. But the nothing happens thing is kind of in the eye of the beholder. When you get a shock, as I say, the shock is really, yeah, there will be an identifiable cause, but that identifiable, well, identifiable is the wrong word. There'll be something that people pick out as a cause, but the cause is really only the trigger. Hmm. It's a question of whether the amount of leverage is already too great uh, to be to be sustainable. The scale of the carry trade is too great to be sustainable. And you normally get some clue before the supposed cause. So I just mentioned the Lehman crash. You had a clue, which is that the currency carry trade was already going sharply into reverse from the summer of 2008 mm. before the Lehman crash. Now, I would say that in the coronavirus crash, of February and March 2020, we already had the repo market starting to freeze up in, in September 2019. Mm. And that was actually quite a serious thing happening there. People overlooked it a bit, but it was actually pretty serious. You had that market and the Fed, which had been trying to contract its balance sheet, had already gone back to expanding its balance yeah, sheet because yeah. of that. So you kind of, there was a warning that leverage was getting too high relative to the 
you can look at it from a monetarist perspective, which is the size of the monetary base. You've kind of got the Fed have provided liquidity, you've got the monetary base, the leverage gets bigger and bigger. At some point, the leverage gets too high, the leverage related to carry trades. Hmm. It seemed that that was already the case before the coronavirus. So coronavirus, in some sense, was probably only a trigger. So hmm. the question is, you know, you can see a potential trigger now with the Ukraine thing. But the question is, do we see the other warning signs that are already there that could be kind of warning signs that the leverage is already too high? Hmm. And I think there are some warning signs in the way that the market is getting harder because, you know, we're saying in the book that the S&P 500 is now central. I think there are potential warning signs in the way the market itself has been behaving, given if you take the view that the S&P 500 is really everything is centered on that now. Yeah. But... Um, We've seen the dollar gaining a little bit of strength, possibly. And perhaps the most important thing is that we've possibly, and we haven't touched on this, but we've possibly seen the beginning, and we talk about this at the very end of the book, of a regime shift in which we're moving away from this regime that we're talking about that's existed so long. We possibly see the beginning of a regime shift. And one of the market indicators of that is the VIX if you look at a long-term chart of the VIX, it's sort of, yes, it's having the spikes and it comes back down like it did with coronavirus, but it's, it's not coming down. To, since 2017, it hasn't really been returning to as low a level as it did previously. So there's some sense <laughs> of a, a very, very gradual uptrend. Which could be the sign that the regime that we describe in the book is all, we at the end of the book, we talk about, you know, what, what might be the signs of a regime change, mm -hmm. complete regime change. We move into a new regime. That's the most hard thing to think about. Mm. But there may be the signs that that is happening. And I, if that is happening, I guess, it's just a gut feel, that we, we won't be such a long gap in terms of time between carry crashes. If we're going into a regime yeah. shift, the carry crashes might be more frequent. And in the last chapter of our book, The Rise of Carry Book, um, in chapter 13, we actually touch on that, where we sort of say that if there's a regime shift, it'll probably take place over a long time and there'll be a mm -hmm. more volatility and um, uh, it'll be, there'll be a more disruption. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, it may be that the idea that you mentioned that you have these kind of long periods of pretty steady returns and liquid markets, and then you have the crash and then you go the Fed do stuff, and then you go back to the same. That we may already be moving out of that into shorter periods between crashes. Mm. So you've got that to worry about. Yeah. You've got um, the fact that the, the markets are showing some signs of a carry crash already. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the dollar is still an important thing to look at, even though the currency carry trade is not as big as it was. The dollar is still an important funding currency, and um, if the dollar strengthens, it still has the same gives the same signal of global liquidity, lo, you know, global carry liquidity, hmm. providing trades being put under pressure. Um, and of course, we already know that the Fed are working towards raising interest rates and starting to contract their balance sheets. So mm -hmm. the yeah. market already <laughs> knows that that is ahead. Yeah. And the yeah. question is, you know, well, you can guess that we're not going to go that far through that until we get mm -hmm. to this point of carry crash again. Exactly. So it could occur earlier than you might expect. You might argue, and it's a fair argument, say, well, we won't see a carry crash until the Fed's balance sheet is actually contracting. That's mm. a fair argument to make, but it may be we don't have to get to that point if leverage is already so extreme that it's, things are already vulnerable. That's so true. we're in a very, very interesting time now because the Ukraine thing is potentially quite important and it's easy to see that that could be a trigger. But mm. the important point to remember is just say hypothetically, totally hypothetically, Russia invades the Ukraine next week and the S&P 500 crashes. You know that all the journalists will be saying, well, yeah, the S&P 500 has crashed because uh, you know Russia invaded Ukraine. But the truth of the matter is, it really will have crashed because we were already reaching a point of vulnerability where the amount of leverage was too great, particularly given that the Fed's balance sheet is still expanding much less now because they're yeah. trying to bring the expansion to an end very soon. Um, that we'd already reached the point where the leverage was unsustainable. 
given mm-hmm. where we are in in terms of the Fed activity, and that and that actually the what is happening in Ukraine will only have been like a trigger and the excuse, but mm. you won't get anyone to believe that because people people will always believe that the the trigger is the reason, whereas mm. actually the, the the trigger is is just the trigger. It's just the the thing that triggers the event. It's like the you know the old expression of the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, mm. it's the uh, the final straw in the stack of straw. It's not really. Yeah. It's not necessarily that important in itself. It's just that the timing of it um, happening. So it could be, you know, I think there's some risk of a carry crash over the next two or three weeks. I think there is. But Mm. as I said, you can't really know. Mm. I think you can know that there's a risk of it. Yeah. And then going forward, I like how you said uh, the crash has become, uh, the, the time span between the crash has become shorter and shorter. So likely to, to likely to, regime. likely to, and that will yeah. probably be part of a regime change. Mm-hmm. We argue in the book, and this is a very central point, uh, it's hard to explain, but we come at it from a number of different angles in the book, that the carry regime, this kind of idea where carry trades have been so important for the development of markets, occurs against the background of um, low inflation or even mm-hmm. pressures towards deflation. And yeah, that really happens. Shock, right? <laughs> yeah. And that really happens because of the weight of debt, which mm. is tending to be deflationary. And so the carry regime is so basically in the carry regime, you have a lot of debt, you have a lot of leverage, but you have a lot of carry trades, which are liquidity providing. So you have a lot of leverage and you have a lot of liquidity and the things go together with this low inflation. But as we try to explain in the book, if we move into a, an era of higher inflation, and some people would probably say we already are because the CPI is you know, much higher yeah. now. If we move into a regime of higher inflation, then um, it'll probably be a regime shift and the, you know, the, 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 the carry thing will go away. And hmm. it's kind of obvious in a way because if we move into a regime of higher inflation. In the end, we have to be in a regime of higher interest rates. And yeah. you know, carry is partly about the low interest rate environment. And as you said, people you know, trying to sit, uh, search for yield and doing leverage hmm. trades to do that. If you've got high, higher interest rates because you've got higher inflation, it's, a diff- it's potentially a different regime. Hmm. But what we say in the book is that we're not going to, you know, the carry regime that we, we talk about has gone on for probably 30 years, probably started in 1987, we suggest later in the book. Oh. We're not going to move to a different regime in a few months. Yeah. It's going to be a process that will probably take several years, as we suggest in the book. And we will still have carry crashes because we're starting from the carry trade being so huge. We're still going to have carry crashes occurring during that regime shift and more central bank action to try and counteract those crashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you just suggested, those carry crashes, if it's a regime shift, will likely occur closer together. We won't have long periods when carry mm-hmm. trades will work and volatility selling it will work and we'll have, we won't. So mm-hmm. we've had these kind of sawtooth pattern of markets rising, crashing, rising, crashing. The rising and the crashing is going to occur much closer together, I think, if we go into this regime sh- uh, shift. And I think that's probably where we are now. And we touch on that at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sorry, the, the last chapter is probably the most important chapter of the book. It should really be longer, but we, yeah. you know, we had to we had to get the book out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was going to say all within the context of decaying growth, right? A lot yes. of people like spur out inflation, but the yeah. growth component is especially important for investors, right? You have this concern about a stagflationary environment going forward, and for us, it's like where do you hide? You know, bonds are super risky with duration within that, in that context. And then equities don't really offer the same return that you got post-recession. So what do we do yeah. about this, Tim? <laughs> How do we sort of yeah. solve the carry? Yeah, problem? yeah. It's, it's uh, very hard to know, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, um, notwithstanding what I said about real estate, I mean, I'm not an investment advisor and I don't know, but I mean, I can say what I think myself. Um, I'm... A lot of my ex-colleagues are very, very smart um, and have done better than me in markets. So I can't, um, I, I've got to admit that straight up would say you don't want to be in bond, treasury bonds now because, you know, we, the regime, a regime change is going to be meaning higher inflation and we're going into that now. But I still have treasury bonds myself because I think we are going to get another carry crash and that will mean that despite everything, 
treasuries will go up again and treasury yields will come down mm. again. That's a very contrarian view at this point. But if we get another carry crash, I think you have to expect that that will probably happen. Yeah. So um, at this point, not forever, but at this point, I, I think you can have treasury bonds. I say, and I'm uh, a disclaimer, I'm not an investment advisor and I've done pretty poorly in markets myself, so no one really should listen to me. But yeah. I... I uh, I do think, and then the other thing is, you know, notwithstanding that there's a big carry trade in real estate as well, huh. I mean, at least with real estate, you have a number of, um, you know, good features. You can get a rental yield on it. You have got some inflation protection in real estate usually, mm -hmm. and if the worst comes to the worst, you've, you know, you've got some bricks and mortar there. If everything else, if everything else blows up, yeah. So I think. Um, you know, having some, I, I think if you're in equities, I don't disagree with those people that, that think that, you know, you want to be in things that have got more obvious value in them now and are, um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, more obvious value and, and, and possibly a little bit more of an inflation hedge element into them. Because if I think we're going to get a carry crash, the carry crash is a deflation shock mm. because the, the carry crash means liquidity is drying up. So suddenly the idea of deflation comes back in the frame, which it isn't at the moment, but yeah. it, it does. It's like a deflation shock. Um, but so that would suggest that, you know, in that commodity equities, like mining companies and stuff, will likely do badly in the deflation shock. Mm. The deflation shock might be quite short-lived because we can probably guess that central banks will abandon their plans to uh, shrink balance sheets and raise interest rates. And oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the as we're in, in this regime shift, the crashes will come closer together, but they might be not that long-lived and central banks might become more and more inflationary. So will the deflation shock maybe relatively short-lived and we as we shift to a regime which is more inflationary mm. um but that will be a very difficult you know the people the people have done well the people have had the kind of mega cap technology stocks it's going to be a much more difficult environment for them yeah i would say yeah um the next 10 years is going to be a much more difficult environment for them i would say Mm -hmm. That's just my uh, two cents worth, which isn't really even worth two cents, probably. But <laughs> that, no, I think we're also seeing that shift from growth to value, right? A lot of those things are, are occurring, and you know, I follow the the sort of technical quantitative approach. So you do definitely see it the the sort of delayed reaction to oversold signals or low or extreme valuation, um, and what that just means is that you got to find a way if you're going to stay invested you know, do it the relative way and, and look for areas where there's less volatility. And that might be treasuries, you know, the, the traditional safe havens, of course. Mm. Um, but it'll be very difficult, I think, going forward, you know. It's going to be very difficult. And yeah. we say that right at the end of the book that, you know, the next 20 years is going to be very, um, um, obviously the book came out a short while ago, but we, mm. you know, it's still, still very relevant. And we say at the end of the book, it's going to be, a, the next 20 years are going to be very tumultuous. I mean, if we're right about the regime shift, all these features, it's going to be it's going to be very very difficult, um, mm -hmm. which isn't very helpful to say that. But I think that um, it is. People can't rely. Maybe that's the main point. People, a lot of people, and a lot of institutions have sort of got to relying on six or seven percent. You know, expecting six or seven percent returns yeah. every year. I'm afraid Pension you can't. Too. Yeah, yeah, you can't really uh, expect that anymore. Exactly. Um, yeah. I think that era is already. It's not. That's not. That's not a situation where that era is coming to an end. I think it's already mm -hmm. ended. Yeah. And, you know, the, what we've seen this year, it, maybe it's leading into a carry crash, maybe it isn't, but it's already mm -hmm. the era, you know, I think it's leading into a carry crash, but I might easily be wrong about that. Yeah. But, may, but even if it isn't leading into a carry crash, we're not going to see 6 7% um, mm -hmm. returns unless we, we have 6 or 7% inflation continuously. And I don't think we're going to get that. I think in the end, mm. we're going to get a lot of inflation. We might have 6 or 7 I should perhaps go back a little on what I said there was we might have six or seven percent returns if we're having seven or eight percent inflation. You know, that's the thing then. It's you know, you yeah. won't be getting real returns like we've been exactly. getting. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Um but even, you know, even even high nominal returns with high inflation is difficult because as you know, historically, and there's no reason to think this has changed, that PE ratios tend to be valuation ratios tend to be inversely related to inflation. Mm -hmm. And if we've got you know, seven or eight percent inflation is a thing that's coming. You know, over. I don't think it's coming right now. Um, but um, 
we have it right now, but I think we're going to get a deflation shock first. But then in the end, we'll be back into the inflation mm. uh, because if that's the regime shift happening, it means it's going to be, you know, end with inflation or will inflation will be part of it. Mm. I mean, if we have, even if we have seven or eight percent inflation over the next 20 years annually, you can't really expect seven to eight percent nominal returns, unfortunately, because even then, because you will be get a derating of PEs, we're coming from a high level of uh, price earnings ratios. And, you know, with that kind of inflation, you've got to expect the price earnings ratios go back to the kind of much lower levels they were yeah. in the old, you know, in the very old days, you they know, have to adjust. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Uh, it's like the constant mean reversion of sorts, you know? Yeah. And if you have a lower expected return, your risk should naturally be lower. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe that's the secret. Yeah. <laughs> boring, yeah. boring move, but uh, safe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's going to be difficult. I think people are making the shift into value, mm-hmm. into commodity rate related type stuff, into stuff that has inflation. I don't, particularly if you have a longer horizon, I think that is the right thing to be doing. Mm. But you have to expect, I think, that we can still have another deflation shock when it might look like the wrong thing. We might, you know, I still think that, you know, I still think, I personally still think we have another carry crash and the carry crash, as we say in the book, is a deflation shock. So, you know, when the carry crash happens, it's going to look deflationary for a short period, but it won't probably Mm. last that long. But, you know, it will be painful if you're in, if you're in some copper mine or something, it's going to be painful when when that happens. But it's probably not the wrong thing from a you know a ten year horizon to be moving away from the big tech stuff into some of the more value stuff. True, I True. think it might look wrong on a one year view though. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think yeah, I think it's a tumultuous next twenty years. But this year is going to be particularly tumultuous, and already is starting like that. I don't think that's going to change. I think it's going to be like it all year, frankly. Yeah, definitely. We'll see. Uh, but this has been a great conversation. Excellent book. Um, waiting for part Thanks two. So <laughs> yes, uh, we haven't been asked to do it yet, but I'd like uh, to. We, I think we would decided we would like to do it if the publisher asks us. So uh, that may be, maybe may well happen. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Well, great stuff, Tim. It's it's great having you on. I enjoy the conversation, and we'll definitely stay in touch. Very good. Thanks so much, Dominic. Thank you very much. Right, thank you, Tim. Thanks. Take care. And you. Bye.